Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Julian Archer. Just want to share a, a video with you now. Thank you, Asava. Hi, I'm Arch, and I'm at the site of the Flossenberg concentration camp in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a devout Lutheran clergyman who believed that all Christians should stand against the Nazi war machine, and actually did so himself. In 1937, in the lead up to World War II, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. At just 39 years of age, Bonhoeffer had to do that himself. At dawn on April 9, 1945, Bonhoeffer was hung on the gallows right here behind me. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I don't believe that every Christian is called to be a martyr, but I do believe Bonhoeffer's words. We must die to self and to selfishness. We must sacrifice. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus gave us these words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This sort of teaching has no parallel in any other philosophy or religion. To win by losing? To live by dying? This is radical. But do we still believe all this 2,000 years after Calvary? Or are we just sacrifice vultures forever circling around the commitment, the sacrifice that Christ asks of us, never prepared to land at the foot of the cross and truly die to self? Hmm. And what constitutes a sacrifice in the 21st century? Well, technically, a sacrifice is where we forsake something or give up something that we really value for something else. So would it be a sacrifice if a person gave $1,000 to a worthy cause instead of spending it on themselves, on something that they really wanted? Well, technically, yes, it would. But what if they still had a million dollars in the bank and the giving of the $1,000 didn't actually have any impact on their lifestyle or their living standards at all? Is it still a sacrifice? Hmm, well, technically, yes, but maybe not. What about the poor widow who only gave two small coins to God? Was that a sacrifice? So at what stage does giving become sacrificial giving? Is there a percentage of our wealth, our time and our talents that God wants us to sacrifice for him? There sure is, and it's not 10%. Bonhoeffer had some powerful words, didn't he? When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die to self. To be crucified to self. In Ezekiel 33, verse 31, we read, So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. This week, this is the fifth day that we've been looking at our hearts. 
there's something about our hearts that God wants. Hearts pursuing our own gain. It's the deepest, innermost part of who you and I are. It's the part that your spouse, if you're married, your best friends, your pastor, your colleagues at work, it's that part that they don't see. That's where you commune with God. And that's what God wants. No one can serve two masters. How many people can serve two masters? None. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or, like I was for many years, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And earlier in the week we looked at the way of where I tried for years to serve God and money by giving lots of money away, by giving lots of money to God, giving it back to God. And realised that you can't serve God and money, no matter what you do. The Pharisees, very next verse, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your bank accounts. No, God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The word detestable in the Greek is dalugma. And it means putrid filth. Putrid filth. God knows our hearts. What we value highly is putrid filth in God's sight. Mahatma Gandhi, the fact is the moment financial stability is assured, spiritual bankruptcy is also assured. The moment financial stability is assured, spiritual bankruptcy is also assured. I don't go looking to Mahatma Gandhi for spiritual guidance, but I think he was, no pun intended, on the money in my life. I can't say about your life, but I can tell you that in my life and in the life of the nations, of the Top 10 richest nations in the world, Switzerland, Australia, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, United States, United Kingdom. He's on the money. He's right on the money. This is what my heart looked like during those times. Jesus, Revelation 3, knocking on the door of my heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. But inside my heart, I had filled it so full of all the blessings of all the material blessings that God had given me that I had started to worship the gifts instead of the giver. I'd become so distracted by the business, by the blessings, by the, the pride of life, by my own self-reliance, that I didn't have time, the time I should have had for God. Fifteen years were spent trying to stop God's blessings from becoming curses. Fifteen years learning that when a person is financially secure, they're in the most spiritually dangerous stage of their lives. I'm going to repeat that for you. When a person or a nation is financially secure, they're in the spiritually most dangerous stage of their life. Fifteen years trying to fully open the door of my heart to Jesus, only to realise that a man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. Fifteen years trying to clean my heart of all the selfish worldly desires 
trying to clean my heart from desiring to do things and to have things and to be things that made me look good. Trying, trying, trying. But money's got claws. I mentioned on Monday, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. But if somebody tells you that money is neutral, don't believe them. Money is not neutral. Money has claws. 15 years trying to clean my heart, trying to get rid of the desires. And those of you who have been here during the week, you'll know, you know, God gave me the victory over luxury watches and the addiction for them. God gave me the victory over extravagant expenses on various things. But I still couldn't open my heart's door fully to Jesus. There was still, no matter how much I tried to clean my heart, there was still the dust, like the gold dust on, a, on the floor of a jeweler's shop, there was still the seeds of selfishness and pride and Phariseeism and self-reliance in my heart. I had to acknowledge defeat. I couldn't do it. I came to the realisation that self and worldly desires are the very fabric of which my heart is made. For me to clean all the selfishness and all the worldly desires and all the Phariseeism and the judging and the pride and all the rest out of my heart would literally be suicidal. It would be self-annihilation because that is what my heart was made from. And that's where I had an epiphany. And that's a big word for a light bulb moment. I was seeking God with all my heart. I had to get this sorted out because otherwise it was going to kill me. This battle between faith and finance, where my finances would go up and my faith would go down, instead of my finances going up and my faith going up accordingly, my finances would go up and my faith would go down like a seesaw. Of course, when my finances went down, my faith went up. But it was a seesaw, up and down. And I had an epiphany. And it was in the book of Ezekiel. I don't know about you, but that's not where I spend my morning worship time. Well, I never used to. Ezekiel's a pretty heavy book. But Ezekiel has some very powerful things to say to us today. What actually happened is still a mystery to me in a lot of ways. But I want to share the text with you about what happened when I stopped trying to clean my heart. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27 then, it's God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And that was it. I didn't have to clean my heart. I didn't have to battle every day trying to stop loving all these things that God didn't want me to love. I didn't have to do that. I, di I didn't have to 
fight the sin in the way that I was fighting the sin. I just had to pray for a new heart, a completely new heart, one that's not made of the fabric of selfishness and worldly desires and pride and Phariseeism and all the rest of it, a completely new heart. People say to me, Julian, what happened? What, what was it like? Well, I want to tell you that it was the most painful, most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. How did it happen? I really don't know. It was just God fulfilling his promise that when you seek me and you, sorry, when you seek me with all your heart, that's when you'll find me. You shall seek me and you shall find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you get to a point where you are so sick of it, when you are so sick of the selfishness, of the, the pride, of the trying to keep up with the Joneses, of the trying to live up to the materialistic society that is consuming us, when you are so sick of that that you just fall on your face and cry out to God day after day after day, release me, deliver me from this death, something happens. When we're born, as babies, we have a reflex. I don't know if there's any nurses here who know the name of the reflex that babies have when you touch their hand and they grab stuff. Or you, you rub the bottom of their foot and their toes curl up. Does anyone know what that's called? Moro. Moro reflex. We have the moro reflex. Where we're always looking out for ourselves for tomorrow. <laughs> always making sure there's enough for, for the morrow. Okay. The morrow reflex, when we're born, we want to hold on to stuff. And God comes along and as we read his word, there's no other way to read it when it comes to material things than simply you are blessed to be a blessing. You're not blessed so that you can splash it around. You're not blessed so that you can cash it around. You are blessed to be a blessing. What did John Wesley say? Christians should work as hard as they can to earn as much as they can in order to spend as little as they can so that they can give all that they can. But we're born with this, we want to hold on to stuff. We want to show how much God has blessed us. And so we hold on to it. God comes along and says, no, you're blessed to be a blessing. Pour it out, Julian. Pour it out. Pass it on. Pass it on. Tell me. Can I turn my hand over from there to there without twisting my wrist? From there to there without twisting my wrist. Give it a go. Put your elbow by your side. Put your hand out, palm, palm side up in front of you, holding on to your blessings, and pour them out without twisting your wrist. Can you do it? No. Can you clean your heart? Can you clean all the muck? Let me go back. Can you clean that, the love for that stuff out of your heart? I thought I could. I've got the Protestant work ethic. I can work hard. And if I can work hard in life, I can work hard at this. I can be dedicated and diligent and read the Bible and obey it. After all, wasn't that why God was blessing me? Because I was more obedient than people who weren't blessed as much? Tricky psychology, isn't it? But that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. I will continue to obey you in the hope that you'll bless me more. Not good. You can't turn your hand from there to there without twisting your wrist. But God can. Look at this verse. 
and watch my hand. This is what God does. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Did I, did I just move my wrist? As in, did I twist my wrist? I went from there to there. Did I twist my wrist? No. Okay, let's start again. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Try it. Do it with me. Watch what God can do in your life. Palm up, elbow by your side. Everything's rigid, okay? We're not, we're not, you don't, can't flop around or put your elbow up or anything. We're controlling this thing to make sure that we do not twist our wrist ourselves, okay? Up. Karate chop straight across. Straight out the front. Thumb straight up to your shoulder. Palm straight down. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Did you twist your wrist? No. At no step in that did you twist your wrist. I mean, you must have. Otherwise, it wouldn't be upside down. But, but it's not stuff that we do. It's something that God can do in us and for us. And that's what he wants to do in us and for us. You know, God wants to bless us. A little bit of prosperity gospel here. There's a few select verses in the Bible that clearly say that God wants to bless his children as individuals with wealth. There's 2,300 verses in the Bible on money. But there are a few that say that God wants to bless his children with wealth. There are, there are quite a number where he wants to bless the entire nation, all his people with wealth. Uh, we see that a lot of that in the Old Testament as well. But when he blesses us, you know, Deuteronomy 6, Moses is there on the, on the side of the promised promise land. They're on the banks of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over the Jordan. Moses has had 40 years growing up in Egypt. He's had 40 years in the wilderness herding sheep, and he's had 40 years leading sheep in the wilderness. About how many of them? Two million of these people, these children of Israel, leading them around the wilderness. He's about to die. He knows he's not going to cross over into the promised land, and he gives his last sermons. That's 120 years of life where he's had times where he has talked and communed directly with God and he's going to give his last sermons. Don't you want to hear them? The last sermon to, to the millions of people that he loves, to the people that he would give his life for, what does he say in his last sermons? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, and in a number of other parts throughout Deuteronomy, these last sermons that he has in the book of Deuteronomy, he says to the people of Israel, guys, you're about to cross over the Jordan River and you're going to go and live in cities that you did not build. You're going to live in beautiful houses that you didn't build. You're going to drink from wells you didn't dig. You're going to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to eat from olive groves that you didn't plant. Basically, you're going into the land of milk and honey. And what's the warning? Therefore, do not forget your God. These were the children of Israel. They were keeping the sacrifices. They had the tabernacle with them. They had all those things. They were good religious people. And he said to them, when you are blessed, do not 
forget your God. I was sitting in church, I was taking sermons, I was doing Sabbath school lessons, I was running mission trips, we were giving donations to different projects all around the world, and I knew in my heart that I wasn't saved because I had forgotten my God. Not completely forgotten my God, but I knew that I no longer had a saving relationship with God because I was too distracted by the gifts he'd given me. As I mentioned earlier in the week, I only know of one solution. I only know of one solution, and that is that as our finances go up, our knees must go down. They must go down, and they must stay down until you have peace with God. Somebody asked me the other day, so what does my prayer life look like today? Well, I push. I have an acronym. I ask God to purify me. I ask him to use me. I ask him to sanctify me, make me like Jesus, and I ask him to humble me. Purify, use, sanctify, and humble. Karen came up to me after, I think it was yesterday's meeting, and said, Julian, push is another acronym, another acronym as well for prayer. How long do you pray for? How many days, how many weeks do you start your day and end your day and even the middle of the day on your knees? Pray until something happens. Push. Pray until something happens. It could take years. It could take years. Could take a month. Could take six months, but it could take years. Could happen the first morning. Could happen the first time you tried. It could happen at the end of this meeting. But pray until something happens. And when it does, Pray like you've never prayed before. Don't stop. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. A guaranteed promise from the creator of this universe. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. On the third line there, the first word is peace. Yesterday we were looking at how to, how to make some of these decisions about retirement. How much do I need for retirement? How much should I give my kids an inheritance? Lord, how can I raise godly children? Should I do this with them or that with them? Lord, how much should I spend on this or that? And we went through a number of steps. One thing I forgot right at the end. When you've been through your steps, your fours and against, you've been praying you've been working it out backwards and forwards with God, is when you finally come to a decision and you go, okay, Lord, thank you, that's my decision, the thing you need in your heart at that point in time is peace. If you don't have absolute peace that God wanted you to do that thing, to go to that place, to invest that way, to buy that thing, whatever it was, if you don't have absolute peace after having gone through a process of asking God, Lord, do you want me to do this or that? If you don't have absolute peace, don't do it. Don't do it. Go back to your knees and go through the questions again. Until you have absolute peace that the decision that you have made is the decision that God would have you make. If you've got your Bibles there, please turn to John chapter 3. Man, the writings of John. He wrote John, he wrote 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, he wrote the book of Revelation. 
I reckon if we had no other Bible except what John wrote, we'd have enough. Absolutely powerful and beautiful words. And in John chapter 3, he records the story of a guy called Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night time in the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Nicodemus was rich like most Australians. He was rich, he was powerful, he was respected, he was a leader in the church, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 guys who were basically the supreme court of of the land at the time, and he knew he wasn't saved. And he came to Jesus at night, and it was to Nicodemus that Jesus said, Nick, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. It would appear from that statement that Nicodemus had a religious experience. That he had been converted or whatever was needed in that Old Testament time. He had given his heart to God and gone off and worked in the church. Jesus said, but you've got to be born again. And it was to Nicodemus that Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up. And a little bit later on, he said, a couple of chapters later, he said, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. A one-man audience. But both of those fade fade into insignificance when you realise that it was to Nicodemus himself that Jesus said, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was convicted. He believed Jesus was the Messiah spoken of in prophecy, but he wasn't converted. Nicodemus left that night and went back into the Sanhedrin. He was there for another couple of years. We know that because a number of places in in John, we have Nicodemus standing up for Jesus. When the Sanhedrin wants to kill Jesus, Nicodemus stands, stands up and gives a reason why they shouldn't. Hang on, wait on, wait on, guys, wait on, wait on. And Jesus' ministry continues. Do you know where Nicodemus was converted? Where do we see Nicodemus next? We've got him in the garden. We've got him twice with the the Sanhedrin defending Jesus. Where do we see Nicodemus' name next? At the cross. At the cross. Nicodemus bought 50 pounds of spices for the embalming of Christ's body. Joseph of Arimathea, another rich guy, came and... Uh, arranged the tomb, and the Marys were there. Nicodemus was converted when Jesus was lifted up. He was convicted two years earlier. He was converted at the cross. In Florence, in Italy, about three doors up from what is arguably the most decadent lint shop in the whole world, is a museum. And in that museum is this statue. It stands about 2.4 metres high, about 8 feet high. It's made of marble. And it's carved by a guy, you recognise his name, Michelangelo. Michelangelo had done a lot of work for the Catholic Church in his day. He was a good Catholic guy. Though he had some moments of wildness in his life. 
When he was old, the Pope said to him, Michelangelo, I want, in honour of what you've done for the church, I want to give you a, a, a tomb in Rome. When you pass away, I'm going to bury you in a cathedral in Rome. And I want you to carve the statue to go on top of your tomb. So Nicodemus, as an old man, started to carve. He found a beautiful block of marble, perfect block of marble, and he carved. And this is what he carved. It's called the Florentine Pieta. It's Nicodemus and the two Marys tenderly taking Jesus' body down off the cross. But there's something interesting about that statue. And that is that the face of Nicodemus is actually Michelangelo. Michelangelo put his own face on Nicodemus. He wanted everybody to know. Everybody who walked past his tomb, so long as it stood, to know that he, like Nicodemus, was converted late in life. He wanted everybody to know that if he had been there when his saviour was put on the cross, he would have done what Nicodemus did. He never made it to his tomb. Michelangelo wasn't perfect, and nor was the piece of marble. As he was carving it, he found a fault running down through the piece of marble, and he got so angry that he smashed it with his hammer. He broke off Jesus' arm, Jesus' knee, some other parts of the statue, and he pushed it to one side and never went back to it. The statue went off into storage, was bought by somebody else, was touched up a little bit by somebody else, and then put back in storage, and now it's on display in the OPA Museum in Florence, in Italy. He wanted everyone to know that he was converted late in life. It's never too late. Every time I look at this, every time I think about Nicodemus who was converted finally at the cross, it reminds me that our God is a God of second chances. I was converted when I was about 20 at Avondale College, standing out one night in a, out in one of the dairy paddocks, just bawling my eyes out, finally realising what it was all about. But over the next... 15 or so years, I lost my first love and I found some other loves. Here's a quote by a fellow called John Stott, a famous theologian. Time magazine, I think, named him as uh, one of the 100 most prominent religious leaders of the 20th century. Christian guy from, from London. Here then is the crucial question which we have been leading up to. Have we ever opened our door to Christ? Have we ever invited him in? This was exactly the question which I needed to have put to me. For intellectually speaking, I had believed in Jesus all my life. On the other side of the door. I had regularly struggled to say my prayers through the keyhole. I had even pushed pennies under the door in a vain attempt to pacify him. I had been baptised, yes, and confirmed as well. I went to church, read my Bible, had high ideals and tried to be good and do good. But all the time, often without realising it, I was holding Christ at arm's length and keeping him outside. I knew that to open the door might have momentous consequences. I am profoundly grateful to him for enabling me to open the door. Looking back now over more than 50 years, I realise that that simple step has changed the entire direction, course and quality of my life. In my teenage years, my dad was a lay evangelist. And so I would go to sleep at night 
He did his programs every Sunday night in the local towns around us. Hired a hall, got his projectors out, got all his Egypt photos, and away, away we went. He'd do his program Sunday night, and then Monday morning, I think Monday morning he used to take off, but by Monday night, the room beside mine was the office, and he'd be in there practicing his next talk for the next week. And I could hear it as I went to bed. And when I woke up the next morning, I woke up to the sound of Dad (coughs) preaching, teaching, sharing his love for Jesus that he had found relatively early in life, I guess around 30. But he wanted to share. He wanted to tell people. And I would hear those messages, all 16 or 18 of them, whatever they were, week after week, over and over and over. And occasionally Dad would say to me, as a good evangelist father would, Julian, if you died tonight, would you know that you have eternal life? That's a heavy question for a teenager. And I didn't. I didn't know at that stage. I have a number of favourite verses, but this is one that is, I guess I could say, my favourite at the moment. It's John again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John did not say, I'm writing these things so that you can hope for eternal life. John said, I write these things to you so that you may know now, guaranteed 100% that you have now eternal life. And I want to tell you, that when that process took place, whatever it was, it was the most painful, most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. Because I now stand before you knowing that I'm going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. I'm a different person. I have a different heart. Instead of me trying to clean all that stuff out of my heart, working somewhat from the outside in, working from the exteriors inwards, God said, no, 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 no. Let me give you a new heart and let me work from the inside out. A whole new life. So the question is, is this new heart a one-time thing? Is it something that once you got it, you got it? And that's fantastic, and every day from there on, pure joy, because you've got a pure heart. Is that how it works? Once saved, always saved? What did Paul say? I die daily. What did Jesus say? Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up your cross daily and follow me. We need to die to self every day. We need to die to self every day. And I want to tell you that that is, for us as Laodiceans, living in the world that we live in, living in the country that we live in, as the second richest adults in the world of any nation, being surrounded by probably the smartest, most satanic, advertising and media that has ever existed on this planet 
Dying to self gets harder every day. Making that first decision to give your heart fully to Christ, to give him all you have, all you are, and all he has entrusted to you is going to get harder every day from here on in. On Monday, we talked about cross-eyed Christians. The Christians in Matthew 6 who have one eye on their heavenly treasures and the other eye on their earthly treasures. Cross-eyed Christians. Wondering why we're struggling. Wondering why we're stumbling. Wondering why we can't see what God wants us to see. Wondering why we can't see people through Jesus' eyes. Because our eyes are like that. We're cross-eyed Christians. We actually do need to be cross-eyed Christians. Both eyes on the cross. Cross-eyed Christians with both eyes on the cross. Paul knew about this. 1 Corinthians 2.2 I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know in is it Acts 11 where he went to the Areopagus and he, he saw all these gods along the side of the road, all these statues, and he saw one to the unknown God and he stood up there in the Areopagus and I said, I see you're a religious people and he matched wisdom with wisdom and knowledge with knowledge with these guys and hardly anyone was converted. Later on in life when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's learned a few things and he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Both eyes on the cross every day. In Colossians 3, 1 to 5, if, what do we know about texts that start with if? They're a conditional thing. They're a conditional statement. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How beautiful is that? You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, remember we died, when Christ who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. William Miller. We know this guy. A founder, one of the founding fathers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. William Miller was the guy who preached that Jesus was coming in 1844. In fact, he preached that he was coming a little bit before that and was very disappointed. But in 1844, the swell had risen so much that I think there were over 100,000 people in the United States alone who were looking forward to Jesus coming on October 22, 1844. And Miller was their leader and everybody knew it. That was October 22, 1844. Jesus didn't come. And on December 5, 1844, about, what, six weeks later, somebody asked William Miller why he hadn't left, like so many others had, tens of thousands. Many had lost their faith in God completely. 
They were so disappointed. Many had just stopped going to church. Many had stayed in church, but just it had shattered their faith. And they said, William, why, why are you still going around preaching the second coming of Jesus? Why are you still so passionate? How can you stay so focused in this crazy world? And this was his answer. He says, although I have been twice disappointed, I am not yet cast down or discouraged. I have fixed my mind upon another time, and here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. That is today, today, and today until he comes, and I see him for whom my soul yearns. That's the power of faith. The hope and substance, the substance of things hoped for, but not seen. He had hoped for Jesus' second coming, probably in a way that you and I still haven't actually got around to hoping in the way that he hoped. And when it didn't happen, he didn't get discouraged. I have fixed my mind on another time, and here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. That is today, today, and today until he comes. And I see him for whom my soul yearns. Why did he say today, today, today? Why didn't he say today and tomorrow and the next day? Why today, today, today? I'm really not sure. But for me, when I read his quote, it's because every day that I'm alive is today. And Jesus tells me not to worry about tomorrow. He says, Julian, today, go out and love like you know me. Go out and love because you know, it, know me. Go out and love because it's Jesus living in you and love people today. Julian, do something today that will make a difference for eternity. I've got that written on a yellow post-it note beside my computer where I do a lot of my work. Will what I do today make a difference in eternity? And I want to tell you that that has changed the way I look at every day. Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. I encourage you, I challenge you with that. Does what you do each day make an impact on eternity? Does it? Do you want to be found doing what you're doing each day when Jesus comes? It's challenging. So do we just move ahead and never get disappointed, never get discouraged? We have these great days? No. This is a quote from Ellen White in Steps to Christ. There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God, yet they realise that their character is imperfect, their life faulty, and they are ready to doubt whether their hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. To such, I would say, do not draw back in despair. And then she uses a word, interesting word for Ellen White to use in this context. She says, we, we, herself included, we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Beautiful, beautiful words. I wrote this book a couple of years ago. In fact, I wrote it about four years ago, but didn't want to publish it, so I sat on it for a long time. And during this camp, I've realised that there's something missing from this book. In fact, there's, there's quite a few things missing from the book. There's probably even quite a few errors. But 
Over and above that, there's something missing. And it's the final chapter. It's a book called Steps to Christ. If you want to know what to read after you've read this, if you want to know what to read after these meetings here at camp, I challenge you, read that book, Steps to Christ. 13 chapters. Read a couple of chapters a day, maybe one chapter a day. Read it for a couple of weeks. Underline it. Highlight it. Write your notes in it. Make it your personal journal of your journey. Put a date in the front. You may have already read it 10 times. I encourage you, read it again. Read it again. Steps to Christ. Because ultimately, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Faith versus finance. It should be faith and finance. It should be faith regardless of finance. It's about faith. But I found in my life that it was faith versus finance. It's our last time around the wheel. Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches. And riches naturally begets pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Is there a way off the wheel? Is there a way to get out of this rat race? Yes, there is. The cross-eyed Christian. Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches. And riches must lead to prayer and thanksgiving. And prayer and thanksgiving to humble, sacrificial generosity, which leads to true Christianity. And the cycle can keep going. Only when Christ is at the centre of every day. Only when we stay at the foot of the cross. You've read this before. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Paul wrote this from Rome. He was at the end of his life. You guys know what Paul did in his life. What a phenomenal, phenomenal life for God. Do you want to know what Nicodemus did after he came to the cross? What Nicodemus did when he got to the foot of the cross and took down the body of Jesus and wrapped the body of his saviour, who he loved, in 50 pounds of spice and wrappings and laid him in the tomb and then saw that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. Do you know what Nicodemus did? Ellen White tells us in Desire of Ages that Nicodemus died a poor man. If you want to know what Nicodemus did with his money, read the book of Acts. Nicodemus was one of the great patrons of the early church. He paid for a lot of those trips, those mission trips, the spreading of the gospel through the then known world. He became a partner with God. Remember the statement from earlier in the week? When a person prospers, either God gains a partner or the person loses their soul. It's that simple. When a person prospers, either God gains a partner or the person loses their soul. Nicodemus became a partner with God and died a poor man. Paul was in prison in Rome. 
He knew he was going to die. And he wrote his final letter that we have a copy of. He wrote it to Timothy, a younger pastor in Ephesus. And in the last chapter, the last section of that letter to Timothy, the very last verse of Paul's letter prior to his final salutations, he wrote that. I have fought the good fight, Timothy. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Did he keep the finances? No. He kept the faith. I encourage you to keep the faith. If you've got your Bibles there, please turn to the 23rd Psalm. Probably the most famous Psalm there is. We know it well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a beautiful psalm of the relationship that God wants to have with us, of the relationship that David had with his God. David, who said, Lord, seven times a day I come before you. In David's day, there weren't a lot of hotels and motels. You had the little villages and towns and the dirty roads, or the dirt roads, in between. And there was a rule of hospitality in the land that said, if you live near a road and somebody knocks on your door late in the afternoon or at night time and says, could I please stay with you the night because I can't make it to the next town by, by nightfall, then the rule of hospitality was that you must give them dinner and a bed and breakfast and then send them on their way. There was an interesting thing that happened at breakfast the next morning after you had put them up for the night. They had a beautiful system of giving an unspoken message from the host to the guest. And that was this. When the host was pouring the drink for the guest, if they poured them half a glass... It was an unspoken way of saying, I have fulfilled the duties of the land. It's time for you to move on. On the other hand, if they poured a full glass, it meant, I've fulfilled the duties of the land, but hey, if you need to stay another night, stick around. You're very welcome. What does David say at the end of the 23rd Psalm, verses 5 and 6? He said, my cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. What was he saying? You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, my cup runneth over. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Isn't that beautiful? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks to Jesus Christ, thanks to the cross. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I know that some of you know that as well, that you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that your cup overflows, not necessarily overflowing with material blessings, maybe overflowing with other sorts of blessings. But none of that really matters. It's about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. If you've got your Bibles there, please turn to Philippians 2. 
verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, being greatly blessed in every way, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and the Father. Friends, I present to you Jesus Christ. I recommend to you Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It took me a long time to realise that. And I'm still learning more and more about how true it is that nothing else matters. That's our number one thing. We will seek him, we will find him when we search with all our hearts. I'm going to do an appeal this morning. I'm going to be honest with you, I've never done an appeal before. I don't know how to do one. As I mentioned at the beginning of the week, I'm not a pastor or a teacher. I'm a businessman. I was a businessman. But I want to invite you to join the disciples, to join the Marys, to join Nicodemus, to join Joseph of Arimathea at the foot of the cross. If you truly want to dedicate your entire life to God. If you truly want to say, Father, I give you all I have, all I am, and all you've entrusted to me. If you truly want to open, be open to the Holy Spirit's promptings about how you can use God's material blessings for his glory and not yours, then please kneel with me as you're able. I'm going to start our prayer and then I'm going to leave about a minute's silence for those who are kneeling, who are able to kneel. I can't read your heart. But during that time of silence, I want you to share your heart with God. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has placed on your heart, please share that with him. And then I'll finish with prayer. Father, there's nothing I can say on behalf of the hearts bowed before you this morning except please hear our prayers. This morning I want to confess again that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And in response to his sacrifice, today I again give you all I have, all I am, and all you have entrusted to me. Please accept this offering of my life. Please renew my heart today and guide me by your spirit. Please purify me, sanctify me, 
Humble me and use me. To your glory. To your glory, Lord, is my earnest prayer. And I pray this on behalf of every need bowed before you, Lord. Please hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word. .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.